Hello, I'm Keith Law, and this is episode three of The Keith Law Show. I will be joined in just a few moments by my friend Alex Spear, who covers the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. Uh, for those of you who are subscribers to The Athletic, my entire Top 100 Prospects package is now up. Uh, that includes, I believe it's 33 separate files or pages. Uh, the Top 100, the list of guys who just missed the ranking of all 30 farm systems, and then one page for each of the 30 teams ranking their top 20 prospects with some additional notes, maybe on more prospects, maybe a sleeper. Uh, So it's a a complete org report for each of the 30 organizations. You can also find on my personal site, The Dish, which is meadowparty.com slash blog, you can find an index page I've created uh, that I just put up on Sunday night, uh, March 8th, that has an individual link to each of those 33 files. So if you're looking just for one or two specific teams or specific pages, you can go there and then get directly in just in case you're not able to find all this stuff on the athletic app, uh, just because it's a lot of different files. I also want to remind everyone that my second book called The Inside Game will be out on April 21st from HarperCollins, technically from William Morrow. Uh, The full title is actually The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. It combines baseball stories with some concepts from cognitive psychology. So if you're familiar with books like Thinking Fast and Slow, it's some of some similar ideas, but expressed or explained with stories from the baseball world. Uh, It will come out on April 21st. I have some signings and in-store appearances uh, the rest of that week, including one at Porter Square Books, which I'll talk about again a little later in the show. I'll be at Politics and Prose, one more page in Arlington, Virginia, and Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg uh, for the remainder of that week and a few other events uh, still to be announced. So keep an eye out for that. And last, uh, coming up for the athletic subscribers later this week, I don't know exactly what day it'll be posted, but uh, I think no later than Friday, my first ranking of draft prospects. This year's Major League Baseball draft is, I think, the best since 2011, certainly the best college class since 2011, which was an epic college class that draft produced, among others, Garrett Cole, Anthony Rendon, and Trevor Bauer, uh, all in the top, what is that, top six picks? Uh, I believe Francisco Lindor was also in that draft class, and Javier Baez, they weren't college players, they're pretty good too. So I'm going to just rank 30 this time. I will expand the ranking as we get deeper into the spring. Uh, I can tell you already, having started work on it, it is also pretty college heavy. And that's kind of exciting because I just think it's easier for fans to follow those guys, to find video, watch their games, get to know a little bit more about the players. We get a lot of stars from the high school ranks. I do think it is a little bit of a marketing problem that baseball has, just that getting to know high school players and, and seeing them play or finding information on them can be trickier than it is for college players, which of course is in the NFL and the NBA, largely where their draft classes come from. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by my longtime friend, former pub quiz partner, Alex Spear. Alex covers the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. His first book, Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up, came out last August. It is the story of the 2018 Red Sox, particularly from a player development perspective. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. I'm delighted, although I'll kind of uh, push back against the idea of partner in Pub Quiz because I think that I, I, I there was a lot of coattails writing that I did in, in those uh, in those glorious days. <laughs> I actually went to a quiz night for a local um, private school where uh, – um, where I have some connections now, and it did it did bring back memories. Although I was very disappointed, like you would have loved the music round. We would have loved the music round. Our old team. There was a distinct lack of geography questions. If I remember correctly, part of why you and John Tomasi asked me to come was for geography questions. 
It was it was good to have an over uh, a, a nice Venn diagram well filled <laughs> of interests. Yes, those were the, the good old days. And, and unfortunately, I am gone from Boston. So is our old quiz master friend, Will. But we are here to talk about the Red Sox um, and Chris Sale's wonky elbow. Uh, you know, what rather that I'm not so much interested in what's the latest, but impact wise, like where are we right now? Because I think there were any chance the Red Sox had, maybe the Red Sox weren't going to contend anyway, because they traded Mookie Betts, but it seems like the rotation now looks even worse than it did a month ago when we were talking about whether trading Mookie Betts was even a justifiable idea. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's a pretty staggering drop off when you consider what, you know, Chris Sale, uh, what a Chris Sale projection might look like as a guy who's, you know, whose baseline had kind of been six war when healthy um, compared to the, the Red Sox don't have very good starting pitching depth right now. And they had already been considering uh, considering, you know, different models, maybe using an opener for the fifth spot in the rotation. You take Chris Sale and you look at, you know, you look at kind of the alternative. That is not a, a replacement level alternative necessarily, unless they have some things go very, very right for them um, that are unanticipated. So the drop off is huge. I mean, you know, even if it's just a, a month, you're looking at Possibly a, a multiple win swing um, in terms of how you would project them, at least in my eyes, uh, to the point where, yeah, it, it, I had kind of thought, OK, the Red Sox still, you know, with with what's left after trading away Mookie and David Price uh, look like a team that could be a factor in that second wildcard race. That becomes a lot harder without Chris Sale and with whatever alternatives they currently have in-house. Yeah, that's the I was just pulling up my. Uh my own Red Sox prospect ranking, as I know you're very, very well versed in the farm system too, but they they don't really have a starting pitching prospect who looks like he's going to step in and help this year in the rotation. Maybe, maybe at the very tail end of the year, but certainly nobody I look at now and say, this guy could come up and make five starts for them at some point in the first half and be replacement level or better. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes, I think that the closest guy that they have is a guy who is it's very it's fair to ask whether or not he can be a major league starting pitcher, Tanner Houck, who has the ability with his, you know, two seam slider combination to wipe out right handed hitters pretty easily. But uh, but he's he really has severe platoon splits. Um, He just isn't he has a slider that should work against lefties but he's not able to locate it and execute with it in a way that's allowed him to do so coming up through the minors. Uh, and between that and the need for further development of a changeup, there's the need for development. So it's exactly what you say. Like there's a chance that Tanner Houck uh, could be a major league, a major league starting pitcher. He'd be their closest to major league ready uh, starting pitching prospect, at least among, uh, among guys who you would think would have a chance to be, you know, more than just kind of a depth guy. Um, and yeah, that's probably not a great option for them until the second half of the season. Beyond that, they have Brian Mata. I know that you view Mata as being more on the more likely on the reliever end of the spectrum. I think he ha- I still think he has a chance to be a starter, but he's going to be in double A as a 20 year old at the start of the season. Uh, they're not going to be in any rush with him. You look at the Chaim Bloom profile of what player development looks like with pitchers. And it's to be more deliberate. So, you know, the idea of, you know, whereas I think that Mata would have had a greater chance of being in the big leagues as a 21-year-old at some point this year under Dave Dombrowski, I would say the likelihood diminished this year. And then the rest of their starting pitching prospects are uh, are in high A and below uh, for the coming season, at least to start it. So, yeah, no, they do not have a pitching pipeline that's ready. They have more promising starting pitchers 
either organization than they've had in some time, but that's not going to help them necessarily in 2020. Yeah, I completely agree. And just for sort of for listeners uh, perspective, looking at my own Red Sox rankings here, my top, I believe their top pitching prospect is Noah Song, who is probably not going to pitch this year because he has a commitment to the U.S. Navy. The Navy's most recent ruling, at least, is that they were not allowing him to defer. I know there's still hope that that may change at some point, but he's not going to help this year. Jason Groom, who's just barely back from Tommy John surgery, he's not going to help this year. Uh, Mata, I agree. I have delivery concerns about him. I think put him to the bullpen. Tanner Houck, I think, has an art. I think a lot of it, it's everything you mentioned, plus an arm slot that tends to be low and I think gives lefties too much of a look at the ball out of his hands. The guys, I think, have a chance to be maybe pretty capable starters in shorter in the shorter term, like Thad Ward, for example. Yep. I think he's pretty clearly a starter. I don't know exactly how good he is, but he finished last year in high A. He's not right. coming up to help them this year. I liked Chris Murphy in last year's drafting. He was a lot better after they drafted him. I think he was probably not helped by the coaching staff he had in college, but he was just drafted last year. He's not coming to help right away. He's probably not coming to help at all this year. And this was part of what... I, was, I want your opinion on this. Part of why I thought the bets price trade, or at least the idea of trading Mookie bets, was somewhat justifiable, which was that bets was going to free agency no matter what. He made that clear. His agent made that clear. And I looked at the Red Sox pitching staff and said, I can't project that to be a championship caliber pitching staff going forward for the next, let's say, three seasons because Salem Price have had injury concerns. Ivaldi was awful last year, and he is an, a walking injury concern. And I did not see that any collection of starting pitching talent to bridge the gap until all these other guys we're talking about might potentially get to the big leagues. And to me, that unless they were going to go out and keep bets and then spend a ton more money to go get the next great free agent starter, I didn't see how they'd be able to keep up with the particularly the Rays and the Yankees, the two most direct challengers uh, or obstacles to them getting to the playoffs. And so independent of what we think of the, the deal in particular, it seemed like that was the argument for the Red Sox exploring a trade of Mookie Betts. Do you agree with that at all or, or you know, even part way? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with it in part, but I don't think that they were, I, I don't think that it was based on a, you know, I, I think that they, they saw themselves as potentially in a position to compete with Mookie Betts and David Price uh, on their major league roster in 2020. I think at the time of the trade, they kind of, you know, they, there was a sense that they could still be contenders in the same way that they thought we can still be contenders after the wreckage of the 2012 season when they finished in last place under Bobby Valentine, you know, obviously cleared him out really quick and, uh, and you know, changed some organizational dynamics, brought in a ton of free agents, and everyone kind of was skeptical about what kind of team they might be, but they thought, okay, we have enough depth to be a pretty good team, and they ended up winning the World Series. So uh, they had that kind of puncher's chance that year. Um, this year, I think that they maybe felt like they had a similar puncher's chance, uh, even after the bets price trade, if if they had good health from from Rodriguez, from Sale, from Evaldi. Um, and now that's a big old question mark from Sale. Uh, moving forward, he's probably going to be out. You know, their best case scenario is, is that he's out for you know a month and a half or so. And their worst case scenario is that uh, they see him at some point in 2021. Um, so that that does they they did not have the depth 
to be able to withstand injury to key personnel. The reason why the Dodgers have been so impressive over a number of years and why they're held up as a paragon of an organization, despite the fact that they haven't won the World Series over these many years, is because they can have a Clayton Kershaw land on the uh, land on the injured list and, oh, here's Walker Bueller. Like, that guy is good. And, you know, they've, they've just had this really great depth inventory that's allowed them to keep the machine running. And the Red Sox were putting themselves in an increasingly precarious position where individual injuries created the possibility of significant derailment. And obviously, they put themselves in even more peril for 2020 by virtue of this trade because the guys they got back were not and we're not major league ready in the case of Alex Verdugo. He is major league ready, but he's not ready to play in the majors right now uh, because he's probably going to be opening the year on the injured list due to that stress fracture in his lower back. Um, but yeah, I think that the Red Sox just thought that they needed to have the, the terms, the term that Chaim Bloom used on the day of the trade was a broader base of talent. They need to increase. Uh, they need to create for themselves a broader base of talent that allows them uh, that positions them to have sustainable success over a longer period of time. Guys who are under control for a number of years and not just for one season. And so I, I do think that part of the calculus wasn't necessarily, you know, where they stood for 2020, but just looking out onto the horizon and not wanting to become like the Detroit Tigers of the middle of last decade. Or, you know, or even if you if you wind back on the Yankees uh, a few years ago when they were kind of you know, in contention for the wild card in a few consecutive years, but they had an expensive aging roster and didn't really have a great young talent base that was anywhere near major league ready. Well, they started trading guys like Aroldis Chapman and, and Andrew Miller brilliantly, I might add, in order to kind of refill that pipeline and bridge that gap to their own wave of prospects. Um, and I think that that's kind of where the Red Sox saw themselves being this past offseason. When I published my reaction to the trade, uh, you actually texted me to, to sort of stand up a little bit more for David Price to say you thought I was a little too bearish on Price's, uh, both on his 2019 season and on what value he might provide going forward. And since you cover the team regularly, and, and I think are probably a lot more in touch with what Price was going through uh, physically last season, would love to get your perspective for the listeners on you know, again, what you saw last year, but also what you think the Dodgers are getting in David Price, uh, especially if those health issues are behind him. I think he's a brilliant pitcher. Like I think that he is. Uh, I, I think that he's a superior pitching mind um, who has certain traits. Uh, close to eighty grade command when he's feeling when he's feeling pretty healthy um, with a with a variety of pitches. With you know, he has an intuitive. He doesn't think a lot in terms of tunnels. And in terms of the modern lingo of the game, but uh, he has an intuitive feel for creating pitch tunnels uh, with two seam, four seam, cutter, uh, change up in a way that completely flummoxes batters. Um, and honestly, like it was kind of fun to watch Price pitching with diminishing stuff over the last couple of years. In 2018, he was a as good a pitcher as there was in the American League for almost all of the second half of the season when he was feeling good. And obviously, he had some really great performances in the postseason that year. Uh, in 2019, he was a terrific pitcher, one who was able to take on a diminishing number of innings. Uh, but nonetheless, the execution was phenomenal uh, in the first half of 2019, where he had a career-high ground ball rate, career-high strikeout rate uh, in that first half of the season. And I think a sub-3 ERA through most of the first half before he developed a cyst in his wrist that prevented his ability to kind of flex his wrist and manipulate the ball in that truly elite kind of 70 to 80 grade command way. But to me, 
if his wrist is healthy, thus giving him the freedom to be able to manipulate the baseball, when David Price can manipulate the baseball, he can be a really, really good pitcher. It's not going to be the prototype power pitcher anymore as it was when he was, you know, he was that uh, as a 1-1 pick back in 2007. And when you think to his days with the Rays and the Tigers and the Blue Jays, that's what he was. The last couple of years, he was a guy who was succeeding, who was capable of enormous success working at, you know, 92, uh, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, um, just because he just, he has a really great feel for pitching. So there's a narrative going around now. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with it, but that because the Yankees have now been hit with, honestly been hit with the injury bug that I thought was going to hit them last year, just predicting injuries is probably a really bad idea. Um, Luis Severino's out for the season. James Paxton is out for some portion of the season. Obviously, they knew Domingo Herman was going to be suspended for a while. And uh, and Masahiro Tanaka is still healthy, but of course, he always seems to be one splitter away from maybe an elbow surgery of his own. So the narrative is that the Red Sox missed a chance. Would they have kept Mookie Betts for one more year if they'd known that the Yankees pitching staff was going to be impacted the way it has been by these injuries over the last six weeks or so? Do you agree with that sentiment? I'm not sure that I do. But again, you you see this team a lot more frequently. Do you think that the Red Sox would have approached the bets trade or the bets market differently if they had a crystal ball that would have told them the Yankees would be what they are right now? My guess is no, because let's not look past the fact that the Yankees have been pretty well hammered by injuries in the last couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. And they've had what the Red Sox lacked in order to overcome that depth. They just kept finding the Luke Voigts of the world and, you know, and, you know, the the Urshelas of the world in order to be able to overcome those kinds of injuries. And the Red Sox, I think, looked at their organization, uh, tried to look at their organization, you know, objectively and saw just kind of crumbling that was happening uh, that was happening, you know, from this like from this core of superstars who are becoming increasingly expensive. Um, that that core still remained wildly talented, but what they had behind it just it wasn't going to be able to. You have to build it. You have to bake into all of your calculations the idea that you're going to be injured, and that your opponents are going to be injured. The Yankees have put themselves in a better position through their, you know, through whatever systems they have, whether it's player development or whether it's just, you know, whether it's pro scouting and figuring out what kind of changes they can make in other guys to unlock something really good. Um, they've they've positioned them. They've done a really, really good job of overcoming injuries uh, in recent years. And the Red Sox weren't they, the Red Sox did a terrible job of it, quite frankly, last year with their starting rotation. And I don't know that that was going to be getting much better. And the probability of the rotation staying healthy still remained up in the air a bit as well. So I, I, I think that they were, they've been pretty convinced of the need to change their roster building model well beyond when they fired Dave Dombrowski. Like I think that they were, you know, really the off season after they won the world series in 2018. I think that that was already on their minds. One last question for you on the bets trade. The, the one thing that surprised me about it, I liked Jeter Downs a lot mm-hmm. um, because scouts like him a lot, actually, and because I think the performance data on him is pretty good. Uh, I was surprised that they didn't address the pitching need in what was coming back. Now, there are multiple arguments for that, not the least of which is that you're probably better off if you want some certainty, you're better off going for position players. They get hurt a lot less often. Uh were you surprised to see that at all, that they didn't go for pitching? Do you think that 
Um, do you think it was philosophical or do you think it was just, hey, this was a great offer? And and, and I do, I think it was a pretty reasonable offer considering what they had to send back and the, the, the salary commitment on price. Do you think that it was just, hey, this is the best offer the market's giving us, we'll just take it? I, it was obviously not philosophical because they were ready to go to take the deal for Alex Verdugo and Brustar Gretoral, right? Mm-hmm. So they were ready to take a pitcher and a high-risk pitcher at that uh, who didn't have a terribly lengthy record of of a performance track that said, you know, that of, of the ability to give innings. But uh, they thought that there was enough likelihood that he could be turned into a starter and a really good one at that, that they were willing to take that risk. Um but uh, so it's not philosophical. I was surprised. I think that uh, that they didn't end up with uh, with a uh, with a pitcher in return. But that said, I, I think that for exactly the reasons you're outlining, namely like there's a they got a higher ceiling guy in Jeter Downs, um, who is probably a higher probability guy by virtue of the fact that he doesn't you know try to throw a, a little round thingy like a hundred times every five days at 95 miles an hour, uh, probably has a higher likelihood of hitting on that ceiling uh, than one of the pitchers who they might've been able to get from the Dodgers. So, you know, I think that the, there was this question of whether or not would they, I, I think that there, it's kind of interesting actually, because to me, the trade offer is at least one of my first windows into how Chaim Bloom operates. He's not risk averse, right? Like he is, he was willing to be risky in terms of going after someone like Gratterall, who had a huge ceiling, uh, and at the same time was willing to take on risk by going after someone like Downs, who had, you know, probably a higher ceiling than some of than than probably some of the pitchers they were discussing with the Dodgers. Last question for you, and my guest here is Alex Spear from the Boston Globe, author of the book Homegrown, which came out in August of 2019. Uh, we are now four and a half months into the Heim Bloom era uh, with the Red Sox. Have you noticed any other differences? You make a good point about he's not risk averse. And I, that does not surprise me. Him coming from a Tampa Bay organization, I think had to take some risks because that was kind of their only chance to maybe uh, acquire stars or to get some big upside. Have you noticed any other changes? I think particularly on the development side, because if you'd asked me, I've known Heim since he was an intern, since he was first hired, if you'd ask me what his particular strength is, other than his his interpersonal skills, I would say it's the development side because that's just that's where the bulk of his experience is. Yeah, well, he obviously has connections to literally every department of a baseball operation, right? He spent a lot of time on the international side. Player development was he he wrote the Rays way, um, and uh, in conjunction uh, with Mitch Lukovics uh, over with the Rays many years and more than a decade ago, um, there have been. I think that there's a trend. He's continued and maybe amplified a trend that the Red Sox had already begun of beefing up um, a lot of their infrastructure. Like they've, uh, he has, uh, he, the Red Sox made a number of hires of new coordinators in the player development department um, with the idea of, you know, getting more eyes and more data on a lot more of their players uh, to try to make better decisions about them. Um, In terms of, you know, the the player development side, though, I think that it's going to take time because he's been so busy <laughs> with uh, with a couple of uh, with a couple of massive, you know, massive organization shaping elements, whether it was uh, the Mookie Betts and Price trade or whether it was, oh, you have to hire a new manager and you weren't expecting that um, as a couple of things that have been on his plate. Uh, but I do think that there's been a very obvious difference in terms of how the roster has been constructed uh, and is being constructed. 
The Red Sox have made have uh, have 13 new members on their 40 man roster at this point uh, compared to the end of last year. 11 of those changes, 11 of those new guys were brought in before the official start of spring training games. In the four off seasons under Dave Dombrowski, uh, they added a total of 10 guys from outside the organization to the 40 man roster that in those four off seasons under Dombrowski prior to the start of spring training games. So um, there, there's very clear evidence of the idea that Chaim Bloom is someone who is focused a lot more on depth and on kind of the potential marginal upgrades that you can get at the back end of the 40 man roster. Um, there's somewhat less continuity as a result of it, but uh, there, there is there, there is a marker of change that's happening there pretty clearly. Alex Spear is the author of Homegrown, which came out, as I said, in August of 2019, is newly out in paperback. Will be. It will be. And uh, that, that that was delayed by, uh, by I, I had by a, circumstances uh, I had an afterward. I had an afterward <laughs> that was finished up in December. What, whatever do you mean, Alex? I have yeah, no yeah. There were uh, <laughs> there were a couple of things that were up in the air. I think that uh, around the time of uh, as Alex, I, I think that when. Uh, around the time that Alex Cora stepped down, we thought, might want to take a little bit more time to think about the afterword on this. Oh, it turns out it's April 13th. Is that correct? No, it, uh, it, that has been pushed back. I mean, it's, it, we do not have a, uh, a target. It will be coming out at some point. Uh, but, oh, I uh, see. yes, we're, we're all on pins and needles to figure out when that will be. <laughs> I, I need a, I need an, an MLB investigation to be concluded for the, uh, for the updated version of the book. Absolutely. Well, so the, the reason I even brought that up is because Alex and I will be appearing together at Porter Square Books on, uh, I believe it is April 22nd, right? I want to make sure I actually give people the correct date. It is a Wednesday. Yes, April 22nd. It's the day after my book, The Inside Game, comes out. Uh, Porter Square Books in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We'll be appearing at 7 p.m. Um, to talk about our books and the Red Sox. Very close to where we used to do trivia together. It right? Should be noted. Yeah. Like down the straight up Mass Ave, down Mass Ave. I don't Couple know, blocks away. Proper direction. Very close, actually. I suppose we could lead the parade down there <laughs> for some. There, there might not be trivia, but there could certainly be drinking afterwards. Excellent. Um, yes, I'm very much looking forward to that. And Alex, thank you so much for joining me. Look forward to seeing you, Keith. It'll be a blast. Excited to read the book, too. Thank you. Before I wrap this week, I want to talk a little bit about an issue that is a bit inside baseball, pun intended or not intended. I'm not even sure. One topic that you may have seen floating around a little bit on social media, and I think it's a little tricky for uh, those of us in the baseball media to talk about. Major league organizations are considering, apparently, changes to clubhouse access with the threat of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. If it's not a pandemic, it's about to be one. Um, and whether they should, again, whether they should be limiting that access and just have you know players and coaches be the only people in the in the clubhouses and locker rooms, and then send out certain players for press access, maybe in a separate space. Uh, I am generally someone I don't use. I don't rely on clubhouse access to do my job. I go to the games. I watch the players. I evaluate them. I talk to scouts and executives who I see there. If I need to reach someone afterwards to answer a question, I do it that way. I'm fine just sending somebody a text and, and just maybe asking one question if I need to get further information. I worked for a front office for a couple of years and did spend time in a clubhouse. And after a while, felt increasingly like I was in someone else's space. That is their workplace. That is the player's workplace, particularly. And I had no good reason to be in there. 
And at this point, I still have no good reason to be in there. I don't need to be in the clubhouse unless I'm looking to talk to someone specific. And every once in a while, a player or a coach will say, oh, hey, stop in and say hi. Okay, then I will Then I will come into your into your space. But otherwise, they don't need me there. There's plenty of other people in the clubhouse, and I am just in the way. However, there are many colleagues of mine and many friends of mine who do rely on that access. And I do share their broader concern that if we lose, we in the media lose that clubhouse access now, which is something that the players and I think the union in general have wanted for some time to further limit or entirely eliminate media access to players in the clubhouse. My fear is that if we lose it now because of the threat of the coronavirus, that we will not get it back. And Obviously, we in the media would be losers. I do think that the sport as a whole would be worse off. Major League Baseball, like all competitive sports, depends to some extent on the free publicity provided by media coverage. And worse media coverage, or simply less media coverage, which would be the inevitable consequence of closing the clubhouses entirely, would maybe benefit the players in the short term. Uh, Their quality of work life would be improved but it would hurt the sport in the long term. There are plenty of other sports out there. Many of them get better or more media coverage than baseball does. And I think baseball is at a point where they should be actively courting more and more favorable media coverage. I don't think the league is on board with this. I worry that the league entering the next CBA negotiations would not take these concerns seriously enough. I believe this is something that Major League Baseball, when going to the table with the Players Union, should view maintaining clubhouse access for the media as something worth fighting for, even if that means giving up something else, somewhere else in what is going to be a wide-ranging and I think fairly contentious negotiation between the two sides. So keep that in mind as you see, potentially, see news about teams in any sport or leagues saying they're closing the clubhouses to any outsiders, and that includes media. It probably seems trivial. It may even be prudent from a short-term perspective, but there may be a long-term ramification to each move like that that leaves most of us a bit worse off. That's all for the show this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to Alex Spear, who, again, I will be appearing with at Porter Square Books on April 22nd. That's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I hope to see many of you out on my mini book tour as well. My book, The Inside Game, comes out on April 21st. If you are with a bookstore, have a bookstore you love that tends to host signings, feel free to reach out to me or feel free to reach out to Daniel Bartlett at HarperCollins. And if I can work it into my weird and constantly changing travel schedule, I'd be happy to do so. Thanks again for listening. Please, if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Leave us a five-star rating, especially on iTunes. It helps very much spread news about the show and continue to grow the audience. Thanks again.